The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. There's a new face up here on stage. This is Whitley Casey. Whitley is a Troy boy and uh, grew up in Central Texas, came to know Christ and uh, has been doing music at uh, various places. He's got his first album coming out in March. Is that right? So he wants all of us to come and support him when that happens. And he is with us as an intern over the next year when he's not traveling and uh, doing performances. So he'll be part of our worship team as an intern for that time. So thank you, brother. Good to have you on board. Welcome. Super. These guys keep getting younger and younger or else I'm getting older and older. I don't know what the deal is. So how about the Crusaders over there? You guys barely squeaked that one out, but we're cheering for you. So we'll keep going. Two more to go and uh, you'll be there, hopefully. And that's about all we're going to talk about in the world of football today. (laughs) TBC Gift Drive, every year you have graciously provided gifts for folks that uh, can't afford it themselves. Uh, We provide dozens and dozens of gifts to folks in need. Uh, There are some cards, I don't know if there are any left, but in the lobby, you can pick those up. There's a Christmas tree out there. I think they're there. And uh, bring your gifts back by next Sunday. Secondly, our men's conference is always the final weekend in January. We're going to invite all of you men to join us. If you haven't been to men's conference, you're missing a blessing. Uh, It's a great time. This year, we have a, uh, we always have great speakers. This year, uh, we have Ben Stewart coming. How many of you have heard of Ben Stewart? Yeah. So if you're an Aggie, you know who that is, right? So two people, that's it. (laughs) So Ben Stewart uh, was a speaker at Breakaway for a number of years. Breakaway is a large gathering of several thousand Aggie students on campus every week. And uh, he was a Breakaway teacher. Then he went with Louis Giglio to found Passion Church in Atlanta. And then from there, he's planning a church in Washington, D.C. And we were fortunate to have him lined up for that weekend. It's a great time to get away. Normally, we have about 300 guys that get away, Camp Tejas. Uh, ladies, that's a great Christmas gift to your husband. Okay, it's a gift for him to get away and do that. It's a gift for you to get him out of the house for a weekend. So I can't think of a better gift. There are brochures out in the hallway. You can go to the website and sign up for all of that. Many other things over the holidays, you've got both in your hands. Our website has that. I just sent out, or will send out this week, I just drafted a uh, end of the year letter that will go out to you uh, just uh, thanking you for all your generosity and praising God for the work he's done in our body over the past year. So uh, we're grateful for all the Savior's doing now. If you have your Bibles or your apps, your devices, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to begin our study this morning. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew as we begin our new series called uh, The King from Manger to Majesty. The King from Manger to Majesty. This morning we're going to look at a message I've entitled A Royal Baby. Matthew 1 verse 1. Very simple verse. We're going to start there and move around the Gospel of Matthew most of our time together. Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You're wondering, what is he going to do with that? I'm wondering the same thing. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sections of your scripture like genealogies that we're quick to glance over and not look at. And so I pray that you would teach us. I pray that our hearts will be transformed and changed as a result of our time here this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Christmas is upon us. You've recognized that actually uh, in Walmart. It started just before Halloween when they put their Christmas displays out. But it's upon the rest of us full force right now as uh, we our attention turns to the Christmas season, all that goes with it. And so it's an exciting time of the year. I, I love the holiday season. And uh, to be able to experience that once again is a great joy for me. Uh, I've always taught my kids we have the opportunity to learn from other people's mistakes. So you look at what somebody does and make a mistake, you learn from it. And that's certainly true at Christmas time as well. I read about a mistake of an elderly lady. She was 85 years old. And a couple of Christmas ago, she made a mistake. She was a sweet, kindly grandmother, mother to her kids. And she always gave very nice Christmas gifts to them, to her whole family. And then she realized finding gifts, wrapping them, sending them, and bringing them or delivering or them coming to get them was just too much work. So she decided for this year she would write checks to all of her kids and grandkids and put them in the mail. So in each card, she carefully wrote, buy your own gift this Christmas. And she wrote checks and sent them in the mail. Well, about two weeks after Christmas, she was rummaging through her desk and she found all the checks that she had written under a pile of paper. So every one of her kids and grandkids received a card from this sweet grandma that said, buy your own Christmas gifts this Christmas. (laughs) The moral of that story is learn from grandma, right? What not to do. You know, I use that to tell you when we look at history, many people have made the mistake of not knowing and understanding who Jesus is. And we can learn from their mistake. There are a lot of people that walked our planet And they've made the mistake of not knowing, seeing, and understanding who our Savior is. And so this Christmas, those of us on the teaching team, our focus is going to be on Christ from manger to majesty and looking at him as a king. Every song we sang this morning had reference to Jesus as king. In fact, I went back and looked at Christmas carols. It's amazing how many Christmas carols talk of Jesus as king. Uh, We start here, joy to the world. Let earth receive her. You can read it with me. Let earth receive her king. Uh, it came up on a midnight clear to heaven's all glorious. All of you be able to fill in this blank before it's over, okay? Christ, this is angels we've heard, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Uh, we three kings, born a king in Bethlehem's plain. What child is this? This, this is Christ the king. And then uh, the famous words for Messiah, king of kings, Lord of lords, forever, forever, hallelujah. I was going to sing some of those, but I wanted to keep you here, so we didn't indulge in any of that. But the point of that is over and over and over and over again in these carols, Jesus is depicted as king. Where does that come from? How how do we get there? Each of the gospels are written with a different intended audience. Matthew, I'll remind you, was a tax collector. His other name was Levi. Matthew, the tax collector, whose name was Levi. And so Matthew writes one of the four gospels. Pretty amazing. Tax collectors were hated by just about everybody in that culture. They were hated by the Jews because many of them were Jews and they were in cahoots with the Romans. And so they hated them because they collected taxes from their own people. I mean, the Romans saw them as traitors against their own people, so they despised them as well. So here is Matthew, a tax collector, being invited to be one of the disciples that followed Jesus around. So imagine Peter, the fisherman, James and John. These guys who would have been very conservative, these guys who would have had to pay taxes, perhaps to Matthew, certainly someone like Matthew, and now they're going to follow Christ together for three years. And here's Matthew, the tax collector, hated by both sides, who gave up a very prosperous, even though he was hated in his profession, it was a very prosperous profession in that day and age. And so what we see here is that Jesus invites this tax collector to join his disciples, and he becomes one of the authors of the four gospels. 
Now, each of the Gospels is written to an intended audience. Matthew's Gospel is written to the Jews. And Matthew is seeking to answer two questions. Was Jesus the promised king? I mean, it's the first question Matthew's Gospel seeks to answer. Was Jesus truly the king of the Jews? And the second question answers, if he was the king of the Jews, what happened to his kingdom? And so Matthew seeks to answer two questions. Was Jesus indeed the king of the Jews? And if he was, what happened to this kingdom he talked about? Each of the gospels, as I said, written to a different audience. Mark, for instance, if you went to Mark's gospel, if you could turn the pages in your Bible, he writes totally different. He writes to present Christ as a servant. And so when you look at Matthew's genealogy, we just read verse one, chapter one, chapter one, verse one, we saw that it's traced back through David, right? And we'll talk about that in a second. When you go to Mark's gospel, there's no genealogy. There's no genealogy. Why is that? Well, Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant. And the genealogy of a servant really doesn't matter. The roots of his family really don't matter. He's a servant, he's not royalty. He's a servant, he's not a king. And so when you go to Mark's gospel, there's no genealogy. Then you go to Luke's gospel. And it's pretty interesting in Luke's gospel, Luke is writing to present Christ as the son of man. So if you were to present Jesus as a man, who would you trace his genealogy back to? There is a genealogy in Luke's gospel, it's Luke chapter three. And it's quite interesting when you go to Luke's gospel, he begins his genealogy in a totally different way than uh, Matthew does. It says this in verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years old, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then it ends this way, the son of Enosh, this is verse 38 of Luke chapter three, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So if you were gonna prove that someone was a man, the son of man, as Luke seeks to do, you would trace him back to the first man and the first man was Adam and you go to Luke chapter three and that's exactly what Luke does in his gospel. He traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So we're in Luke's gospel. He's proving that Jesus is king. We're gonna come back to verse one, chapter one, but don't miss it, he says he is the son of David. In Matthew's, in Mark's gospel, presenting Jesus as a servant, no genealogy because the genealogy of a servant doesn't matter. Luke's gospel, Jesus is the son of man. So Luke traces him all the way back to Adam, the first man. We just finished studying John's gospel here at TBC on Sunday mornings. John is presenting Jesus Christ as the eternal son of God. We saw that over and over in John 20. I've written these things in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the son of the living God, and that believing you may have life and his eternal life in him. And so when John writes his gospel, he's writing to the world to prove that Jesus is God. So how does John begin his gospel? With a genealogy? No. He begins his gospel by proving that Jesus is deity, presenting him as deity, presenting him as the eternal son of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, and the word was, was with God, and he was in the beginning with God. And he goes back and shows that Jesus always has existed, always will exist, and does exist now, and therefore he is the infinite God. Each gospel written to a different audience. Therefore they begin, and they're written in different ways. It's amazing how God took men, like, like us, and he pinned his word through the spirit of God, through the lives of these men to support the purpose of who our savior was. So let's hone in on Matthew for a second because our whole study this Christmas season is gonna be on Jesus as king. 
Well, if you look at Matthew 1.1, the first thing you notice when you read that is that he skips a lot of people. It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, who's older, David or Abraham? Abraham's older. So why in the world does he begin with David? Because if you're going to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised king of the Jews, you would start with the ultimate king in Israel's history, who was King David. I mean, if you were going to prove to a Jewish person that Jesus is the promised king to their people, to the Jewish people, you would start with King David. And that's exactly what Matthew does. He writes his gospel to prove that Jesus was the promised king. And so he traces his genealogy, he starts his genealogy with David himself. Now, there's some interesting things in this particular section of God's word and this genealogy we're going to talk about in a second. But first of all, make no mistake that God ordained all four gospels so that we could get a clear picture of who Jesus was. And so what we see is this. He came from a royal lineage. If he was going to be a royal baby, he had to come from a royal lineage. Bev and I have gotten hooked on uh, some of the PBS specials that have been coming out, The Crown, Elizabeth, Victoria, and uh, deal with, they all deal with the royals. How many of you have seen those? How many? What do the rest of you people do out there? <laughs> Man, you are missing some great stuff. It's great British history and, and also throw in Downton Abbey, which is not about the royals. And Bev got me hooked on this stuff and now I, I just love it. I love when the new ones come out. And if there's one thing we've learned from looking at and studying British history, it's this. You don't declare yourself king or queen. You don't say, hey, I'm the king now. You don't say, I'm the queen now. You don't say, uh, hey, I've had babies, so you're a queen. They may think they're the queen of your house, but they're not gonna be the queen of England. How do you become a king or a queen? Through the proper lineage, right? You have to have the proper credentials to become a king or a queen. You don't declare yourself king or queen. You come through the royal line to be king or queen. If you watch any of those series, that stands out to you over and over. I mean, you have to be of the proper lineage. And so that's what Matthew's doing. He's saying Jesus had the proper credentials. He came from the proper lineage to be your king, my Jewish people. In fact, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great preacher of yesteryear, he's also an attorney by training, says this, the legal right to rule always came through the father's side. So if you had the legal right to rule, it came through the male side. And this was true in Jesus' case because he was legally Joseph's eldest son. Now, Jesus was, was not born through Joseph, right? He was born through, through God, so, but he was adopted by Joseph. So legally, as Joseph's eldest son, he had the legal right to rule. So we have two genealogies. Luke shows through Mary's genealogy, Jesus was literally a blood descendant of David. If, you go, if we were studying Luke's genealogy, it'd be traced, we could see it goes through David as well. Matthew proves that through his adopted father, Joseph, Jesus was legally in the royal line. So Jesus has the legal right to rule and the regal right to rule. By the way, there, there are people that say the Bible and they say, aha, there are contradictions all through the Bible. Just look at the genealogy in Matthew and genealogy in Luke, they're different. Of course they're different. I mean, when you look at the genealogy in Matthew, it goes through Joseph. You look at the genealogy through Luke, it goes through Mary. Of course, it's going to be different. Their family backgrounds are different. And so as we look at that, we recognize that's the difference between Matthew and Luke's genealogy. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the one who has the royal right to rule. And he traces it in Matthew 1.1 to David. 
Because if you're a Jewish person, you knew that the promised king of kings, the promised king would have to come through David. How'd they know that? Because all the way back in Samuel, David wanted to build the first temple. You remember that? But God said, David, you can't build the temple because you're a man of war. So I'm going to give you a son named Solomon eventually, and he would build the temple. But David, I'm going to give you an even greater promise. You're not going to build the temple, but what we know as the Davidic covenant were words given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, your house, your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Note these key words. Your house, your kingdom, your throne forever. A house, a kingdom, a throne forever. David, you're not going to build a temple, but I've got something greater for you. The Messiah, that's what it's saying here, will come through your line. The one who will regally have the right to rule over my people will be your descendant. So now fast forward. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And he announces to her that she's going to be with child. And he, goes, he gets very specific when he talks to Mary. He says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son you're going to bear, will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And his kingdom, or house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Davidic covenant is a promise to David, a house, a kingdom, and a throne forever. Do you think it's any mistake or just a mere coincidence that when Gabriel appeared to Mary, he used those same words, a house, a kingdom, a throne forever. What was Gabriel saying? He's saying, Jesus, the son that's going to be born to you, Mary, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He will be the one who is the king of the Jews. And so when Matthew starts to pin his gospel, he goes all the way back and he says, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and then he goes all the way back to Abraham. But he begins with David because everyone knew that the kingdom would be David's kingdom, it would be of his line. A house, a kingdom, a throne forever. Gabriel to Mary, a house, a kingdom, a throne forever. So basically what we're saying is this. Jesus came of the royal lineage. He had the proper credentials to be the king of the Jews. The true king would not only have the royal lineage, but he would demonstrate his proper credentials. Well, if he was to be the true Messiah, he would have to fulfill what Isaiah talked about. One who would be virgin born. His birth would be different than the birth of any person who's ever walked on our planet. Any person who ever walked on our planet. By the way, before, before I get there, if you look at the genealogy found in Matthew 1, it's interesting, ladies, I want you to note that there are four ladies mentioned there. There's a mention in verse 3 of a lady named Tamar, in verse 5, Rahab, verse 5, Ruth. In verse 6, it says, uh, today was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. If you write in your Bible, circle Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and uh, the wife of Uriah. Her name was what? Bathsheba. It was highly, highly, highly unusual for women to be mentioned in genealogies at that time. So obviously Matthew's pointing something out. What's he pointing out? Well, let's start in verse five with Rahab and Ruth. What do those two women have in common? Somebody came to me at the first hour and said, well, both their names start with R. Well, yeah, okay. Let's think a little deeper than that. 
What did Ruth and Rahab have in common? Rahab was a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. Gentile women in the lineage of Jesus. You ever thought about that? What does Matthew say? Not only is Jesus king of the Jews, but he's king of all people. It's not just a king for the Jews, he's a king for the Gentiles as well. And let me show you that even the king of the Jews had Gentile blood in his ancestry. And then he points out, uh, and then he mentions Tamar. Who was Tamar? Tamar's an interesting lady. She had a husband, the husband died. And uh, what's called a Leverite marriage means if your husband died, you married the, his oldest brother. You married your brother-in-law. Ladies, aren't you glad that law is in existence today? Your husband dies, you've got to marry your brother-in-law. Think about that one for a while. Well, the brother-in-law would not impregnate her. He's a guy who spilled the seed on the ground is what it says in the scriptures. And so uh, Tamar did, uh, uh, tainted Tamar, one uh, author calls her, Beth Moore calls her tainted Tamar. She calls her that because she dressed herself up as a prostitute. She went and hid herself on a pathway knowing her father-in-law would come on that pathway. She bedded down with the father-in-law so she would become impregnated so she could have a baby in his lineage. That's tainted. Tamar. One of the ladies, Rahab. She's a little tainted, isn't she? Rahab, she's got her last name. What is it, Rahab the what? Harlan. I've told you a bunch of times, you're going to meet her in heaven. She says, I'm Rahab, and you're going to fill in the rest of her name for her. And then there's the one born, who was the, or the one who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I, I would say she was the one who was sinned against. But whenever you think of Bathsheba, you can't help but think about her adulterous relationship with David, right? And even though I think she was the one sinned against, we always associate her name with David's adulterous affair. So why in the world would Matthew have Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba in a lineage? I think it's to show that no matter how tainted our past, he's the redeemer of all people. Amen? Hey, we all have a tainted past. Some of us worse than others. And he says, I want you to know, in the lineage of the Messiah himself is Tamar. In the lineage of Messiah is also Rahab. In the lineage of Messiah is also um, Bathsheba. Two Gentile women, three tainted women. He's a redeemer for all people, regardless of their past. So that's the royal lineage, the royal birth. Whoever the Messiah would come in and fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah said he would be virgin born. So in Matthew's gospel, what does Matthew do in verse 18? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew just throws it out there. He, he doesn't explain the virgin birth. He doesn't explain how it took place. He just says, I want you to know she was betrothed. That means they're engaged. They're not yet married. Before they came together, they had not had a sexual relationship yet. She is a virgin. She was found to be with child. So that's quite unusual. And it was by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew just fills in all those blanks in one short verse to show that his birth was different than the birth of any other person who walked on this planet. Why did Jesus have to be virgin born? Why do you have to be virgin born? Um, you've probably noticed one thing that I've observed in life as well. Sinful parents produce sinful babies. Have you noticed that? Have you? Sinful parents produce sinful babies. You walk into our nursery out there. There are a gazillion of them out there right now. All of them are little sinners. Everyone are little sinners. Because the sin nature that 
Adam, when Adam sinned, we sinned. Romans chapter five talks about that. And we were in Adam. So we were born with a sinful nature. We were not born good. We were born sinful nature. That's why we need a savior, right? And so what we see is that sinful parents produce sinful babies, except for grandbabies, right? I read a lady this week, she said, uh, if your baby is beautiful and perfect and never cries or fusses, sleeps on schedule, burps on demands, is an angel at all times, you're not the mama, you're the grandmama. Um, For Jesus to be the sinless son of God, he had to be virgin born. Because sinful parents produce sinful babies. And so Jesus had to be born of a heavenly father so he would not be a sinful savior. If Jesus were not virgin born, then he had a sin nature. If Jesus had not been virgin born, he was not God. If Jesus was not virgin born, he was disqualified for being our savior. That's why the virgin birth foretold by Isaiah the prophecy is so important to us as we look at our king. The royal birth. If God were to become a man, it'd be different from the birth of any other person on our planet. His royal worship. If he was indeed the king of the Jews, you would expect him as a king to be worshiped by those who would deem him as royalty. And so we read about the Magi. That's what Matthew does next. In Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi came from the east. They arrived in Jerusalem and they asked, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. So what does that have to do with royal worship? I mean, who are the Magi? Most of the information we have about the Magi or information we think we have come from a Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient are, right? And so that or tradition. So in that hymn or in that Christmas carol, we assume how many Magi are there? Three. And they brought three gifts, right? Gold, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it makes sense there were three of them because they brought three gifts, right? Where do you find that there were only three of them? Where do you get that? Know what the scriptures say? Because they had three gifts, we assume there were just three of them. Do you think Herod would be afraid if three people came riding up looking for a king? I submit to you it's probably an entourage that showed up together. So our traditions tell us, well, they were kings, we three kings, right? Um, our tradition tells us there were three of them. Our tradition tells us they came riding up on what? Camels. Where do we get that? Did you see that in Matthew chapter 2? Three kings came riding up on camels asking, Where is he born king of the Jews, right? It's all tradition, all speculation. Um, we even name them Melchor, Balthazar, and Casper. Casper, the friendly ghost. If you're under 40, you have no idea what that means. Sorry. Um, tradition tells us they were baptized by Thomas. Tradition tells us that they were, their skulls were found in the 12th century by St. Helena, and they were buried in a cathedral in Cologne. How many of you believe that? I get some swamp property in Louisiana I've been trying to sell for a long time. We don't know. So who were they? 
You can do some research and find out who they were. So there was an empire called the Media Persia Empire. Remember that? The Medes and the Persians, you remember those guys? Humor me and shake your head, yes or no. Okay, so there we go, yeah. So you've heard it anyway just now. If you haven't heard it, just heard of it. So the Medes and the Persians, they were of the, they were, they were Medians. They came from the tribe of, they came from the, 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 the Median culture. Interesting enough, the Medes had tribes just like Israel had tribes. You know what the priestly tribe of the Medes were called? The Magi. It's a priestly tribe of the Medes. If you look at the Mede system of worship, it's quite interesting. They were monotheistic. They were one of the only few societies in that time besides the Jews who were monotheistic. Mono, one theistic God. They worshiped one God. They also had a sacrificial system that involved animal sacrifices. They also declared animals clean or unclean when they looked at them for food. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Sounds just like the Jewish system, doesn't it? And so if anybody could integrate pretty easily into the Jewish system, it'd be them. So here's the question. Median priests, Gentile priests, come to Jerusalem asking for the king of the Jews. What? Who were these guys? Why would Gentile priests come looking for the king of the Jews? Well, one, we know there was this miraculous star that appeared, the star of Bethlehem. Rick Erickson, one of our men, has done an excellent job uh, uh, teaching that out. You can find the links, I think they're on our website. If not, you can email me. I'll send you the links from Rick. He does a great job presenting the star of Bethlehem. So that's one of the reasons they came, but they came looking for the king of the Jews. Well, how can that happen? I can only speculate how that happened. Let me walk you through what I think. In the book of Esther, uh, they're looking for a new queen at that time. And it says, the king, Azarias, the wise men, that sounds vaguely familiar, the wise men uh, who understood the times, it was a custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew the law and justice. So basically they're looking to appoint a new queen. He goes looking for information. And what we realized when we started studying the Medes, that they had this group of people called the Magos, M-A-G-O-S, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Old Testament originally written in Hebrew. There's a translation of the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint. And the word that's used there is Magos right there, the, the Magi, the wise men, same word, Magi, Magos. So what we recognize, and you look at median history, is the wise men would be called upon to help to anoint a new king or queen. So these were Gentiles who crowned royalty. Huh. Interesting. So we go to Daniel. Daniel who wrote much about the Messiah. Daniel who even pinpoints the day the Messiah would come. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The king gave orders to call in all the magicians, the magi, the magas, the conjurers, the sorcerers. So they came in and stood before the king. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, this is not a, there's not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king. And as much as no great king or ruler has ever seen anything like this of any, guess what the word is there? Magas, magi. Um, goes on, Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither the wise men, conjurers or magi, both those words, same root word, magi, wise men, magicians, nor the diviners are able to declare it to the king. He's saying, hey, wise men can't do this, only my God can. So Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Guess what Daniel becomes? This is what Nebuchadnezzar gives him the responsibility to do. 
the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect, read the rest with me, over all the... Have you ever seen that before? Daniel became the one who would be the teacher and ruler of the Magos. So how is it that Gentile crowners of royalty show up in the first century in Jerusalem looking for a king? I cannot, I cannot connect those dots from the scriptures for you. I can only speculate. Godly Daniel, who wrote about the coming Messiah precisely to the time he would appear, calls him the Ancient of Days, is placed in leadership over the Magi centuries before. And then centuries after, in the first century, these guys come riding up looking for the King of Jews. Now, I cannot totally link those dots for you. But I would imagine what we know of Daniel in his history and what he writes about and what he foretold, that for centuries they had the writings of Daniel and the word of Daniel and they looked for the same Messiah that Daniel spoke of. And so here's this supernatural star, these guys writing up. And I don't want you to miss the reason why they came. If you look at the end of verse two, they came asking the question, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to do what? To worship him. I've circled the word worship there. I've drawn a line to verse 11. And they came into the house. This is Matthew 2, 11, And they saw the child with his mother Mary and they fell down and they what? Worshiped him. They were so laser focused that they came looking for one thing, the king to be worshiped. That's a great reminder to us at Christmas time. A number of years ago, I went with Bev to the Mollen Temple. Doesn't take a whole lot of time to go through the Mollen Temple. Um, we were gonna do some Christmas shopping. After 10 minutes of torture, I found a bench. I can, go, I can go walking miles. I do that every Tuesday and Thursday. I walk five miles Tuesday and Thursday mornings. I go to the mall, walk for 10 minutes. I'm deadly. I'm tired in 10 minutes. So I did what every man does. I went and found a bench, and I found the bench outside of Penny's where Santa Claus is, where kids take their picture of Santa Claus. And I know this goes a while back. I don't know, seven, eight years ago. I can't remember. And uh, what I do remember, and I wrote down in my notes so I could use it as an illustration one day, as I sat there and I watched kids go to get their photograph of Santa Claus. You ever watch that? They're all excited, aren't they? Not. Most of them are screaming and crying, wondering why mom and dad's torturing me to do this. <clears throat> On this particular day, one, one, there was a kid about four years old who got my attention. They had these uh, rope things like we use out here, you know, to keep crowds out and uh, to queue people up. And there are people queued up to go get their kids' pictures with Santa Claus. And this kid kept looking and he kept going under and back and under and back and Finally, when one kid was taken off Santa Claus' lap, he made a dart, jumped out of the line, made a dart for Santa Claus, jumped in his lap. You would have thought that was the highest security breach in the history of the world. <laughs> I, I mean, Santa, Santa picks him up. He's looking for somebody to hand him to. Security guy comes running looking for, you know, a kid to arrest and put in handcuffs, I guess. His parents come running to get him, and they're all there. But 
When I wrote my notes, I was, Gary, don't forget what that kid was saying. His eyes were fixed. He's just saying, Santa, Santa, Santa. He was so focused. These magi came for one purpose, to worship the king. There's a lot of distractions at Christmas time. I want to be like that kid. Not focused upon Santa, Santa, Santa. But focused upon the king, the king, the king. Well, what we see is he came of the right lineage to be the king. He had a royal birth unlike anybody else. He was worshipped from king by kingmakers or those who declared people as royal. And finally, you would expect him to demonstrate royal power. And we don't have time, but I could walk you through many places in the book of Matthew where we see miracle after miracle after miracle where Christ demonstrated his royal power. Look at chapter 8. There are five events mentioned in a row where Christ demonstrates his power always for the benefit of others because the character of the true king would be a character not to benefit and bless himself, but to benefit and bless others. So he heals a leper. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He stills the storm. He stills the deep, that, that which is natural. Then he goes to demoniac, the garrisons, cast all those demons into some pigs. And we see he not only has power over the, super, over the natural, but the supernatural as well. He's got royal power. If the true king came, he would have the proper credentials, that is, be from the royal lineage. The true king of the Jews came, he would have the royal birth described by Isaiah, described by Matthew in chapter 2, verse 1. If he were the true king of the Jews, he would receive royal worship, for a king deserves to be celebrated at his birth. And he was by some magi, Gentile kingmakers. And if he were the true king, he would display royal power, the proper character of the king blessing and benefiting others and not himself. Matthew says, his question is, was he really the king of the Jews? And he says, look at his genealogy. Look at his birth. Look at those who came to worship him. And then he says he has the moral right as the king because he overcame the temptations he also presents, uh, he says he's got a forerunner. Every king would have somebody to introduce as coming to a community. So Matthew presents John the Baptist as a forerunner, proper protocol for a king. And then he says, uh, let me tell you how the subjects in a king's kingdom should live. And he has Matthew chapter 6, 7, and 8 known as a Sermon on the Mount, which teaches us as his subjects how to live under the rule of our king. And then Matthew chapter 8, all those miracles I talked about where he says, let me demonstrate to you the power of the king. Matthew says, I want to introduce you to a baby who was a king. So my final question is, is this baby the king of your life? It was a cold winter day and a young 10-year-old boy was glad to be out of the city of London and into the British countryside. He was enjoying the beauty of the snow after the bleak streets of London and his mom invited him out for a drive in the countryside. It was snowing pretty hard and he quickly accepted because he was rarely alone with his mom, let alone uh, driving with her. They got in the car and they began to snake their way out of the long drive from the manor that they were staying in and they hit the pathways and the streets of London. This goes back many years ago, or of the countryside outside of London. The boy relished the sound of snow crunching under the tires and 
as he would breathe, a puff of air came out, and he and his mom joked about that. Heavy snow began to fall, began to fall, the snow began to fall heavier, and visibility lessened, and as she rounded a corner, she was gone too fast, a curve in the countryside, and she ran off the side of the road as the car fishtailed, and they ended up in a ditch. Fortunately, neither one of them were hurt, but they realized they couldn't budge the car. So they got out. And they began to walk, looking for a home where they could use a phone to call for help to come and get them out of the ditch. There was no home close by. They walked a mile, and finally, after two miles, there was a large British manor, and they walked up to the door, and they knocked on the door. They knocked on the door. A lady opened the door, and she was too stunned to even let him in. The lady says, I just, I quote her words, I just stood there. When's the last time royalty came knocking on your door? You see, the, the young boy was a guy named Prince Charles, a guy on your left, who was 10 years old at the time. And the mother was Queen Elizabeth. It was rare for them to ever be on a drive together, let alone being, a, let alone, being alone. And that lady who answered the door, it's quite interesting. She says, I opened the door and I stood there dumbfounded because royalty came knocking. In the fullness of time, royalty came knocking. He came as a king. He came as a savior. And so I ask you, is this baby the king of your life? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming as our king. As we look in that manger, we see his majesty, your majesty. And our desire is to be focused upon that this season. My friends, my prayer for you is if you don't know the king, you'll meet the king. If you know the king, royalty that's come knocking, that would be the focus of your celebration this Christmas season. We pray in his name. Amen. Bless you.